This week's episode is about the persecution of Christians and includes some details that may not be appropriate for younger audiences. Listener discretion is advised. In late 2017, two Iraqi priests celebrated Mass at the St. John Paul II National Shrine in Washington, D.C. The hymns and chants throughout the liturgy were in the Aramaic language, the same language spoken by Jesus himself. It was a memorial for victims of genocide, specifically the genocide of those killed by the so-called Islamic State. Many people have asked, what is the blessings of being persecuted? Where is the providence of God in being persecuted? Is there a blessing in being persecuted for the faith? One of the priests was Archbishop Bashar Warda of the Chaldean Catholic Archdiocese of Erbil. Many of Iraq's Christians belong to the Chaldean Church, which is an Eastern Catholic Church in full communion with Rome. He assured his faithful that he would be with them. He will not leave them. The grace of being persecuted. God shows his love and care through the solidarity being shown by those outside. Also, the suffering gives the chance for people of a goodwill to show their love. We pray every day, thy will be done. And we ask, what's the will of God? The will of God is helping his people, being close to the needy, being beside the poor, the persecuted. You might not have heard of him before, but Archbishop Warda is one of the most well-known international advocates for persecuted Christians. Here he is speaking before the United Nations Security Council late last year. Iraq, the country which has so often been harmed, now looks to you for all, to all of you for help. And we hold you all accountable for this. We believe we have a future. We ask you not to turn away from us. With the current pandemic and continued civil unrest going on in Iraq, it wasn't possible to get another interview with the Archbishop for this podcast. But here's an interview we did with him right before he gave that testimony. All over the world, but especially in Middle East, we are going really to, to face the reality, the sad uh, reality that Christians are going to disappear from, from Middle East. Because the pressure, the persecution is really uh, being felt immensely during the last 15 years, but especially the la- uh, since ISIS and the following years, the Christians have been persecuted and marginalized. So our message is to keep this voice. Christians have been persecuted. Let's act in helping them. This week on CNA Newsroom, we bring you to Iraq, to one of the world's oldest Christian communities, not far from the biblical town of Nineveh. 
In Archbishop Warda's words, Christianity in Iraq is perilously close to extinction. We're going to start by talking to Stephen Rasha. He's an American lawyer who has, for the past 10 years, spent many months out of each year in Iraq, helping with rebuilding efforts. It all started in 2007, when he flew to Iraq to work with a group that was doing various infrastructure projects as part of the country's reconstruction. By 2010, when his business was complete and he was preparing to head back to the U.S., Stephen asked Archbishop Warda if there was anything else he could do to help. In his uh, characteristic bluntness and charm, he said, yes, there is. You Americans have made quite a mess here, and there's still a lot of work to do. You could stay involved with us and help. I wasn't really sure that I could provide any help, and quite frankly, uh, many of my friends that I discussed this whole uh, topic with were quite skeptical and some of them uh, openly said don't do it it's a hopeless cause of course Stephen ended up taking the plunge anyway and for the next four years he worked in iraq helping to bring to fruition projects to help displaced christians the christians of iraq are amongst the oldest christians on earth uh, they received the, the gospel from the first apostles, Thomas and Thaddeus, in the, in the first century. And uh, uh, so the, the Christian roots in Iraq actually predate the, the Muslim roots. Even under the repressive regime of Saddam Hussein, who came to power in 1979, Stephen says that in 2003, before the U.S. invasion, Iraq was still home to well over a million Christians. They were important members of society, especially in uh, uh, education and in medicine. Uh, many of the prominent uh, surgeons, doctors were Christians. There's a saying in, in Iraq that, uh, yes, amongst the Christians, yes, Saddam was a tyrant, uh, but compared to what came after, the time under Saddam was a golden time. But it, it's said in, in an ironic sense. It's certainly not meant to say, you know, that, that uh, Iraq under Saddam uh, was a beautiful place. It was a place uh, of, of fear, um, but um, it was also a place of, of relative safety, certainly for the Christians and the minorities. Life in Saddam's Iraq was far, far from ideal. Stephen remembers clearly what one priest told him about life before the U.S. invasion. In 2003, he remembers there being announcements uh, from the loudspeakers of the minarets in Mosul telling the uh, Muslims of Mosul, don't buy homes from the Christians, they will all be gone soon enough and you can have them for free. In the wake of the U.S. invasion, a new government came to power in Iraq, one that was dominated by Shiite Muslims. As we mentioned in last week's episode, if you're not sure of the difference between Sunni and Shiite Muslims, just know it has to do with the difference in beliefs about the Prophet Muhammad's line of succession. 
Overall, most of the world's Muslims are Sunni, but Shiites dominate in some areas, such as in Iran and certain parts of Iraq. In the time post Saddam, then the Shia uh, gained control and specifically became uh, the controlling power in uh, Mosul and in the north and used that power in turn to put their thumb down on the Sunnis and established, uh, you know, ill will there. And, and so this kind of was the seed in some respects for the violence that followed. When Stephen first arrived in Iraq in 2007, the country was already largely in disarray. But he said the Christians in the northern part of the country actually seemed to be relatively optimistic about their future. There was construction going on uh, everywhere, and uh, the Christians uh, in the Erbil area, uh, that's a capital of the Kurdistan region, were reasonably positive about their futures there. This was despite a continued threat of violence, especially in the large city of Mosul. There had been bombs and attacks on Christians going on there. Priests, bishops murdered, kidnapped. In Mosul, there's no question the Christians uh, felt uh, increasingly intimidated and concerned. Many of them had left uh, because of the, uh, the, the rise in uh, Islamic violence, is, uh, militant, uh, radical Islamic violence. By 2014, the threat had fully solidified into a new and devastating anti-Christian enemy. The roots of ISIS are in an earlier group, Al-Qaeda in Iraq. Al-Qaeda was the terrorist organization that Osama bin Laden founded in the late 1980s, with the original goal of opposing the Soviet Union's occupation of Afghanistan. By the late 1990s, Al-Qaeda's influence had spread throughout the Middle East. And it was men affiliated with Al-Qaeda, most of them Saudis, that carried out the attacks on 9-11. Something devastating has happened, and again, unconfirmed report that a plane has crashed into one of the towers. ...on the side of the World Trade Center exploded into flames and black smoke. Al-Qaeda of Iraq launched insurgencies in 2006 and 2007, but American troops and local militias beat them back. The group was largely battered and scattered, but by 2013, they had regrouped with a new name, the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, or ISIS. They were radical followers of uh, teachings of, uh, of an Islam from, from centuries ago, and they uh, utilized the resentment uh, that had uh, uh, grown uh, amongst the Sunni community against, uh, primarily against the Shia community and to a lesser extent uh, against the, uh, the Christians uh, who were perceived as close with the Americans and in any case uh, infidels. ISIS believes that all other faiths are inferior to Muslims, thus targeting them for extermination. Even fellow Muslims who don't adhere to ISIS's strict interpretation of Sharia law can be targets in ISIS's jihad, or holy war. 
In Syria, where the civil war had been taking place since 2011, ISIS exploited a power vacuum in the north and east to take over large parts of the country, maintaining control through brutal repression. The Syrian city of Raqqa became the capital of the so-called Islamic State. This is something to bear in mind. This group didn't call themselves a state for no reason. They sought to create a fully functioning society with laws, taxes, and all the trappings of a government, but based on their repressive ideology. In their words, a caliphate. In the city of Mosul, once the center of Iraqi Christianity, the celebration of mass ceased for the first time in 1600 years. In these parts of the world, there are very few parts left in Iraq and in parts of Syria. They speak Aramaic, the language of Christ, which as conversation, not just in the liturgy. This is Father Ben Keeley. He's an Englishman who spent 17 years as a priest in Vermont. If you told me perhaps even a year before, maybe in early 2014, that I would ever have been in Iraq, uh, let alone stop being a parish priest and spend my priestly ministry doing this, I would have said you were nuts. Father Ben started a small charity called Nazarene.org. As he began to raise and send money to help Christians in the Middle East, he began to wonder what the money was actually being used for. I needed really, I think, to, to go in the first place to see that the money was actually getting to the people that needed it, because that's so often a worry. The money was indeed reaching its destination, but of course, he didn't know that. So after a couple of years of trying, Father Ben finally made it to the Middle East to meet the people his charity was helping. His first destination in May 2015 was Erbil, which is the capital of the Kurdistan region in the north. And by the way, Erbil is not some rinky-dink village. It's a modern, bustling metropolis. Or at least, it was. Erbil is a peculiar place. It has more half-finished buildings, skyscrapers, than I've ever seen in any city. Basically, these they were building, there was a boom, an oil boom, and then that collapsed, and then, of course, ISIS. So all these about half-finished skyscrapers, but the, the refugees were living in them. Living in them, in squalid, terrible conditions. Oftentimes, an entire family would be living in what was basically a shipping container. It was hot, dusty. This scene is especially sad when you consider that, not too long ago, Christians were a thriving minority in Iraq. These were people like us. They had homes, they had proper houses, they had jobs, they had cars. They had education, and then they were forced to live, leave everything, everything, and live in a shipping container for, they didn't know how long, it it ended up being more than three years. So my friend Johanna, it's a perfect illustration, he had been a university lecturer in Mosul and had lived in in the Christian town of Karakosh. When ISIS came, they drove everybody out. They all had to leave in in one night. And so there he was, a university professor, ending up having to drive people around. And we've become good friends, and he's been my guide ever since. He's now back, thank God, in his hometown, but still with many, many difficulties. It's not just Christians and Muslims suffering there either. 
There's also the Yazidis, an ancient religious minority that has suffered almost unimaginable cruelty at the hands of ISIS. The Yazidis are an indigenous uh, group within Iraq and in other parts of the Middle East, but many of them, most of them in Iraq and parts of Syria, uh, an older religion than Islam, and in fact, older religion than Christianity, um, peaceful people, and is the Islamic State uh, ISIS brutally persecuted them because they called them devil worshippers, which they're not. Um, brutally persecuted them, killed many of their men, and took their women and children into slavery, sex slavery. In Iraq, the weakened and corrupt army, despite being provided with substantial equipment and firepower capability by the U.S. government over the years, was largely powerless to stop ISIS taking over. In fact, ISIS stole many of the U.S.-provided weapons and used them to enforce their reign of terror. ISIS has destroyed or desecrated many, many churches and holy sites in the area. They used one church for target practice, one as a jail, one as a storehouse for explosives, and one as its headquarters for the so-called religious police, who enforced their strict interpretation of Sunni Islam. You have a country that is is blown apart uh, with little hope. Stephen Rasha again. People uh, encouraged uh, for all sorts of reasons to act out in radical behaviors, um, and they did. ISIS wasn't only made up of native Iraqis. Using the internet, ISIS recruited and radicalized young Muslims from every corner of the world, a terrifying reality that Stephen witnessed firsthand when he went to the majority Christian town of Batnaya. This was a town that had been the scene of a devastating battle as Kurdish forces wrested it from ISIS control. The one building that had been uh, left more or less uh, intact, in at least structurally, uh, was the church uh, because the intention, as we understood it, was that it would eventually be converted to a mosque. They defaced and desecrated everything that was uh, Christian uh, inside it. And part of that was a a chapel uh, for the Virgin Mary. Uh, We found graffiti on the wall. And the stunning thing about it was not the graffiti, but the language that it was written in. It was written in German. Oh, ihr Kreuzsklaven, ihr habt keinen Platz im islamischen Land. Entweder gehst du raus, oder wir töten dich. Which means, in English, O you slaves of the cross, there's no room for you in the land of Islam. Either you leave, or we kill you. These were uh, uh, people who had been immigrants uh, to Germany, had learned German, or had been Muslims raised in Germany, who had become radicalized and uh, come back to Iraq to fight with ISIS. The number of foreign nationals flooding into Iraq and Syria is at an all-time high. From this young Egyptian... Many of these ISIS fighters, European ISIS fighters, who are now returning to Europe and are not being prosecuted. It was really uh, quite a... a, a a stunning thing uh, for us to see. Of course, there was uh, graffiti everywhere uh, in in Arabic, um, and we'd grown used to that. But to see it in German really uh, brought home to us how wide-ranging this uh, ideology and its believers uh, had become. 
We'll be right back after this short break. Hello, this is Kevin Jones. I'm a longtime journalist with Catholic News Agency. I want to thank you for listening to CNA Newsroom. We bring you the voices behind the headlines. We explore our world together with an eye towards our faith. If you enjoy CNA Newsroom as much as I do, be sure and subscribe to the show. You'll never miss an episode. Subscribing is easy and free on any podcast app, like Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. Just open your phone's podcast app, then search for CNA Newsroom. Click the subscribe button. That way, you'll get our episodes as soon as we post them. Happy listening, and make sure you check out episode 22, featuring yours truly, Kevin Jones. Now, back to the show. The rise of ISIS was swift, but not unforeseeable. The international aid community was certainly unprepared uh, for the, the level of the, uh, the catastrophe. It was clear to Stephen, the church, and to many Christian aid workers that religious minorities, especially Christians, but including groups like the Yazidis, were the ones in greatest need of aid. But not everyone was convinced. It was often misinterpreted as saying, you're just looking for a preference uh, for the Christians over others. I would say, look, I, I, if it had been, you know, Shia Muslims that were down to, from 1.5 million to uh, 200,000, I would advocate on their behalf. You know, this doesn't. This is not specific to Christians. This is specific to do an ancient and peaceful people um, who have not caused harm to anyone um, deserve uh, to be removed from the face of the earth. Or should we, uh, as collective humanity, say no? This is not right. To this day, Christians are suffering from high unemployment rates and crushing poverty. Christians have certainly suffered economically um, as much or more than, uh, than anybody. Secretary of State Rex Tillerson calls the fall of Raqqa to Syrian Kurdish forces backed by the U.S. a critical milestone in the global fight against ISIS, but he also says... Our work is far from over. The state of Islamic State is really no more. ISIS is down to a handful of enclaves, but there are still hundreds of U.S. forces fighting ISIS in Syria, and the Pentagon says they are sticking. Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi is dead. He was the founder and leader of ISIS, the most ruthless and violent terror organization anywhere in the world. ISIS was finally driven from Mosul in 2017, and the last remaining town of the original caliphate in Syria fell in early 2019. In August of this year, Iraqi Prime Minister Mustafa al-Kazemi encouraged Christians to return home. So, is ISIS really defeated? Yes and no. Certainly the group is once again scattered and weakened, but it's hard to defeat an ideology. And the ideology of repressive militant Islam is still out there, and remains attractive to many people. There are ISIS affiliates active all over the world, 
from Jordan to Yemen to Indonesia to the Philippines. In Iraq at the moment, one of the biggest threats that remains are ISIS splinter cells that continue to operate despite the larger scale group being defeated. By the US government's estimates, there is still about 15,000 individual ISIS fighters left in Iraq, still armed and still dangerous. Some predominantly Sunni countries in the region, such as Turkey, have been unwilling to turn their full firepower on ISIS. There are also Iran-backed militias in the area that commit abuses against Christians with impunity. Most of them are Shiite-affiliated and have the support of the Iraqi government. They mostly fight against the remnants of the Sunni ISIS fighters, but they've also been known to harass and extort Christians, mafia-style. Part of the solution, according to aid groups, is empowering local police forces to keep communities safe from these kinds of attacks. Another continuing problem is that, despite the number of Christians living in Iraq, the Iraqi constitution establishes Islam as the official state religion and states, quote, that no law may be enacted that contradicts the established provisions of Islam. These elements were present in Saddam's government for sure, but it's even worse now. So you're probably wondering who's actually helping the Middle East Christians right now. Two of the most active Catholic organizations in the area have been the Knights of Columbus, the American Fraternal Organization, and Aid to the Church in Need, the Pope's charity that helps Christians worldwide. Without those two organizations, uh, it's likely that the majority of the Christians in uh, Northern Iraq certainly uh, would have left within the first two years. Remember Archbishop Warda from earlier? He oversaw a massive humanitarian effort by the church in the area. In the immediate aftermath of ISIS and the, and the huge influx of, uh, of uh, displaced people into the Erbil region, nobody was prepared for it. And essentially what uh, happened was an informal deal of sorts was struck. Uh, together with the Kurdish government, wherein the Christian leadership said, look, we will take care of the Christians. You just provide us with the land and and uh, general security. What ended up happening is that the church actually set up massive camps for the displaced Christians. And these camps actually surpassed anything the UN set up in terms of cost effectiveness, efficiency, and in some cases, in size. This was great in some ways, but of course, the primary function of a church, of a diocese, is not to run massive UN-style displaced persons camps. As it got into year two, the church said, okay, look, we've set this up. We could do this for the short term, but we are not the UN. You know, we're, we're a small diocese and our donors don't have uh, uh, endless pockets and, and, and really we would need some help on this. There was another problem. Many of the official UN camps were full of the very people that were involved in the persecution of the Christians. So many Christians preferred to stay in the church-run camps. Stephen says the US and other governments were pretty much getting all their information about the situation in Iraq from the UN. This led to quite a disconnect, especially when a US congressman came to visit the camps and the U.S. consulate sent out a security team to make sure the visit was safe. And so they sent along uh, a young woman, very, very polite, professional, concerned, but she didn't know where, where the camp was. 
and she didn't know anything really about what was going on in it because again all of her interaction had been through the UN and, and so as uh, as the day came and we finally showed them on the map where it was and, and I brought the woman to the priest Father Emmanuel uh, who ran the camp and uh, he said to her we've been here for two and a half years and you are the first person from the United States government we have ever seen and the woman was shocked uh, and you could see it it really bothered her she she was shocked and and trying to figure it out and she said well you where is the UN representative and the priest said we have no UN representative they've not been here in over two years they brought in tarps at the very beginning and and, and we've not seen them since so there was just this enormous disconnect Iraq was and is a messy place for many reasons and in terms of the delivery of aid to the Christians there, Stephen said he doesn't want to cast blame on any particular person or group. We believe everybody meant well, um, but the system had real flaws in it, and it's our hope in pointing this out that we could learn from it. Even though the U.S. has done good things, the country that has really stood out is the, is the country of Hungary. Hungary is the only country still in the world that has a specific government ministry dedicated to persecuted Christians. It's true. Here's the Hungarian State Secretary for the Aid of Persecuted Christians talking about why Hungary started this ministry. Christianity currently is the most persecuted religion and religious group in the world. According to the data, there are more than 245 million people in the world who suffer persecution for their faith in, in, in Christ. And we care all about the suffering people. About all, uh, Our fellow Christians and all who are persecuted in the Middle East should not have to rely on multinational institutions when America can help them directly. And tonight, it is my privilege to announce that President Trump has ordered the State Department to stop funding ineffective relief efforts at the United Nations. And from this day forward, America will provide support directly to persecuted communities through USAID. Despite the American Vice President's promise in 2017, advocates for Christians in Iraq remained frustrated at the apparent delays in the aid actually reaching the Christians that needed it the most. The U.S. government is refuting testimony given to Congress yesterday about the lack of U.S. money getting to Christians and other religious minorities in Iraq. If that work was being done, people would see it, and we don't see it, and this is what we're telling the people. We are not seeing these benefits. Stephen said in terms of foreign aid, things have improved somewhat in the past year from his perspective, but there's still a lot to be done. Some positive signs include the construction of a state-of-the-art hospital in a suburb of Erbil, as well as the recent founding of the Catholic University of Erbil. I would uh, have to say absolutely within the last year, um, there's been uh, uh, enormously positive, legitimate support that has come uh, from the U.S. government, from the State Department, from USAID that has actually reached uh, the people itself. Since fleeing in 2014, some Christians and other minorities have returned to Iraq, but many haven't. Not only are the homes and livelihoods of many of these Christians destroyed, 
There are several other factors keeping them from returning, one of which is the simple fact that the danger is not yet over. There are still hostile forces who would hurt or kill Christians if they returned. Plus, some, but not many, Christians have managed to build better lives for themselves elsewhere. For the Christians currently in Iraq, Stephen says it's a mixed group. You know, some of them are, are quite stubborn and say, they will bury me here. I'm not leaving. Uh, this is our home. Uh, there are others who are on the fence saying, well, we'll see what happens in this country. Will, will there really be uh, reform of the government? Will there be, will, will there be new elections? Will the Christians uh, really be able to have uh, a place where they're not uh, persecuted and abused? And so they're waiting. There is a third group too, he says, of Christians who are willing to leave, but who realize that they're unlikely to find another place to go, another country that will take them in. And of course, the coronavirus pandemic has made going anywhere else that much more difficult. And just as a reminder, it's not just Christians. There are still over 300,000 displaced Yazidis as well. This scattering has led to some unexpected and heartbreaking situations. Uh, one of the problems that we had is that because of the, the situation, there were many elderly orphans left, people who were just not physically capable of, of leaving the country, of going through that arduous journey uh, with the younger members of their family. And so they were left behind in care of the church. Stephen said the Christians of Iraq have a lot to teach us about the importance of real, concrete faith. Their faith was violently attacked by people who wanted to remove all trace of it. And they had to come to a decision uh, on what their faith actually meant to them. And, and so they've been scourged in their faith in, in a way that for much of us in the West, we don't understand. So I think in that respect, the, the Christians of the East, and especially in Iraq, and their humility after all of this violence uh, against them, still have it in them that the the reason for their existence and their importance is to, to provide a witness of love and forgiveness. And, and don't we all need that now here in the West? We must pray, and that's my always my number one mantra. That it's not that's not a way of sort of getting out of doing something. Prayer is essential. Whenever I've been in Iraq or in Syria, the first thing people ask is pray for us. And that's not lightweight. We must pray. And not just once in a blue moon, not just once every few Sundays. Um, we really ought, a Christian ought to be praying for his persecuted or her bro persecuted brothers and sisters every day, even if it's just a Hail Mary. They take their position as uh, the salt of the earth that they're they're called to be by their faith they take that seriously and and in iraq you know historically schools hospitals medical facilities and clinics uh, have been areas where the christians have provided shelter and support for everybody the image i use and it's perhaps the most powerful uh, that could be used is a reminder of what christ said to saint Paul or Saul as he was on the road to Damascus when Saul said who are you and Jesus said I am Jesus and you are persecuting me he didn't say you're persecuting my church you're persecuting my followers 
you're persecuting my institution. He said, you're persecuting me. So wherever the church is being persecuted in Nigeria or Iraq or Syria or Lebanon or wherever, China, that means Christ himself is being persecuted. So if Christians don't care about that or shrug that off, I think we have to really ask ourselves, are we really Christians? That would be the thought I would leave uh, people with. But we must have a care and a concern and a passion for the persecuted Christian church. CNA Newsroom is a production of Catholic News Agency and a service of EWTN News. We're produced and edited by Kate Oliveira and me, Jonah McKeown. Special thanks to everyone we spoke to in this episode and to Courtney Maras, who conducted a couple of the interviews you heard. Please continue to pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world. See you next time. Next time on CNA Newsroom. Christians are being exterminated day in, day out. It is systemic. The killings continue day in, day out. Persecution of Christians in Nigeria is an undeniable fact. Subscribe and listen to CNA Newsroom wherever you get your podcasts.